Betches Media presents Not Another True Crime Podcast. It's all fun and games until someone gets hurt. Welcome back to Not Another True Crime Podcast. We're having a different intro because we got a different episode. While Sarah left me, I'm Danny Murphy. Sarah's not here today, but I'm joined by someone, don't tell her, that I'm so excited to talk to. And I'm kind of happy that I can keep her to myself. Like, because I already feel a new best friendship. It's all happening. She didn't log off the Zoom when I said that, so I know it's true. So before, before we introduce her, I got to intro her. Because you, she comes with a bio. She comes equipped <laughs> with, like, a register. Your, your accomplishments and accolades are longer than most seamless orders I've placed. So I, <laughs> I need to read this. So she is a PhD historian of contemporary American politics and culture. Chic. The author of Classroom Wars, Language, Sex, and the Making of Modern Political Culture, and the co-host of Past Present Podcast, but we're here to talk to her about a new podcast that she has exclusively on Spotify. Welcome to your fantasy, and please welcome Natalia Pretzella. Petrozella. Petrozella, I got it right before. <laughs> you did, you did. It's okay. You know, you know, you know what's so funny? Because I almost forgot how to say the word fantasy. <laughs> In my head, I almost said you hosted Fantasia, and I was like, "This is an American Idol podcast." <laughs> <laughs> that is so Thank funny. You for joining. Okay. How are you doing? I'm great. To, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So, I, in case any, we're going to get into you, the podcast, and kind of everything in between. I've been listening. I've been loving. But Thank before you. we jump into the podcast itself, I want to know a little bit more about you and what led you to the Chippendales? Like what brought you, because obviously you have, you've been uncovering and unpacking so much American culture for so long. What about the Chippendales really stood out to you to be like, I need to dissect this? Okay, so I am a child of the 80s. So I remember the Chippendales. It's, you know, I'd see it in Spencer's Gifts at the mall. I was too young to like buy a Chippendales thing. I was buying New Kids on the Block merch, but I was like, who are those boys? You know, so I kind of dimly knew about it. Um, but then, um, so, you know, I'm, I study gender, I study culture. And so the Chippendales in some ways would be a natural thing to be drawn to. But I hadn't thought about the Chippendales since Spencer's Gifts, to be quite honest. And then the way that it came up was like, I do a lot of talk head stuff, kind of making history accessible to people. And this European documentary filmmaker had said, oh, can you talk about sexual culture in the 1980s? I said, sure. She said, well, our segment is about the Chippendales and sexual consent, but don't worry, you're just giving context. And I'm like, well, I don't really know anything about Chippendales. But then I, I'm a historian. So I started to look at some historical newspapers. And the first thing I saw was like Gloria Allred, the feminist attorney, was like holding fundraisers at Chippendales. And then other feminists were like, that's not feminist. And they're fighting about it in the LA Times. Then I saw the founder of Chippendales murdered his partner. And I'm like, wait, what? And so that, like, if that's not already the making of an interesting podcast. Um, so that was kind of the seeds of it. And then I had this other podcast, which is conversational past present, but me and the other two co-hosts of that, we'd long wanted to do something more produced, more narrative. And so we were like, let's pitch it. And that's basically how it came to be. I love that. And I'm also so fascinated by the idea of like, you're, I, I feel almost inadvertently, you're not just unpacking and covering history from the 80s, but you're also like uncovering like the way you grew up and the way you were taught, because you said you're a child of the 80s. So yeah. looking at it through the lens that you're looking at now, is it kind of interested to go back to be like, oh, how archaic, but also how much we haven't changed in terms of like viewing sexual pleasure and just like sex in general? 
Oh, totally. I mean, this whole kind of like idea of womanhood that the Chippendales helped make of like the kind of party girl who's out there and like the way she expresses her independence is spending her own money, like, you know, gushing over cute boys. Like that's like what gave us Girls Gone Wild and like the kind of like raunchy like form of like girls empowerment that totally was part of the world that I grew up in as a kid of the 80s and then as a teen and as a young adult in the 90s and early 2000s. And, uh, you know, I came to this project as a scholar, but we're all kind of narcissistic. And so I definitely was like revisiting my own experiences and identity and interests through the lens of this whole phenomenon. I need every listener to know I am not one ounce narcissistic. I am not staring at myself in the Zoom as we talk. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. I also realized too, a quick um, aside, if you could give a brief overview because some of our listeners might not be that familiar. Can you kind of just like explain what is the Chippendales or who are the Chippendales? Yeah, so the Chippendales is a male exotic dance review for women. Now men can go to this show. Like that's very clearly stated on their website, but it started off expressly being for women, started off in this dive bar in West LA. And the idea was like, there'd be a show for women. Men would strip, not totally naked. It was very important. This was not like sex work or pornography, but um, they would strip down and then they would, um, and then at 10 o'clock, they'd open up the club to men and it would be a nightclub. And it was like a chic place. Like, you know, the Playmates would hang out there, Hugh Hefner. Then it became a New York City nightclub too. And then um, it became this like mass market phenomenon. The Chippendales were on sitcoms. They were like on wall calendars, mall merchandise. I kind of like that you're talking about the idea of the Chippendales being like an event and a destination, because I have to say, even like from me, not until listening to your podcast, literally, I kind of viewed in my head them sort of like, a strip club almost, to be honest, like of just like a place where it's like kind of like you going for the purpose of like being entertained and things like that. But it it feels almost the way you're talking to it more of like an elevated, like um, not vaudeville, but kind of like a Gypsy Rose Lee-ish type of thing. Totally. I mean, it is a show. That's one thing that's the- that has stayed consistent from not the very early days, but from when it evolved into a show by the early 80s till today. It's a show. It's an experience. It's somewhere, I think, unlike a strip club where women strip for men, where, first of all, a lot of men go by themselves to that. People always uh, contrast the fact that um the fact that in a male strip club, it tends to be very quiet. Whereas like at a Chippendale show, it's groups of women like hooting and hollering. <laughs> and then like to give you a sense of things, like I went to Chippendales in 2019 to the traveling show. It's like dinner theater. Like I, I ordered like salmon and roasted potatoes like before, as I was watching the show. That's a different kind of experience, you know? Yeah, it's a little experience, but I did immediately phallicize how the salmon was presented with the potatoes on your plate. <laughs> I gotta be honest. I'm just like, you're like, okay. <laughs> But I like that sort of like a fun, it's an event to go to. And I mean, I don't know if this is me just kind of like, this could be completely wrong, but I feel almost it must have been nice too back then to have a space that was like a safe space for women in a sense, I could assume of just being only women allowed so they can actually go to a club and enjoy a show without a man trying to buy them a vodka soda until 10 p.m. (laughs) Yeah, and that's something a lot of women actually said that went there that like one, like a lot of the fun was like getting together with their friends and getting dressed and getting ready to go out and this whole girls' night out culture, which didn't exist yet. Like bachelorette parties were not really a thing before Chippendales. Like this whole, now we think of girls' night out and bachelorette parties, divorce parties, like all kinds of girls' (laughs) 
you know, debauchery is very much part of our culture that didn't really exist yet. And so that was something new. But then like you say also, yeah, definitely lots of women said, well, the idea of being in a club where if a guy was going to come grind on you, it was because you held up your singles and said, come over here, not because he kept coming over you, that that was a really big deal. And one of the main characters in the podcast, Candace Maron, um, she actually said this, we ended up not including it, but she said, you know, I don't want to overstate that we were like a rape crisis center or anything, but that there were women who had suffered from sexual violence and survived who said that at Chippendales, they actually felt safe because women so outnumbered the men and the men who were there were paid to play a particular role, which was not to be like coming onto the women if they didn't want it. And so I think that that's valuable. I will issue one big caveat, though, which is that one of the big money makers with Chippendales in the early days was at 10 p.m. The reason that the guys all lined up outside to show up was that all these women were like all liquored up and all kind of hot and bothered from watching this show. Mm -hmm. So it was considered to be kind of like great pickings for straight men who like wanted their, you know, all these like available women. So I don't want to like overstate the feminist (laughs) utopia. Chippendales because it really was not but you know that makes sense if you can't get a chip or a dale you can get a todd who does accounting who just showed up at eleven forty-five. so you know it happens yeah exactly <laughs> but that's i mean i feel like that is such an interesting thing and that's what it's so fascinating about the because it's both such a cultural conversation about it but also an economical conversation and the idea of also i almost want to say how entertainers entertain now because walk through it is almost shocking to me to see how hearing about the Chippendales now and being like, that blew up everywhere overnight. Like it wouldn't happen, I feel like in 2021. But back then, I feel like you said they were going on late shows, they were going on TV, they were being this huge conversation. Was that sort of expected of them? Or was that of the time? Or was it sort of like, this is a new shift? It was a new shift for sure. Like the idea, one, that these men would kind of make a living taking their clothes off for women, that was new. And also that they were straight men. Like one of the challenges early on in Chippendales was getting guys to go on stage and take off their clothes because it was considered like that's something you'd see at a gay club. And that was not in a moment of like a lot of homophobia, which only got worse, by the way, as AIDS um, really became a big deal in the 80s. That was something that was very hard to get men to do. Then there's also the like, what do you mean? Women are going and hooting and hollering at these like hot bodied men, like women act like that. And so both of those things kind of coexisting made it like ripe for talk shows and all of these kind of, you know, TV treatments about like, look at this crazy thing happening in LA. Ricky, like, just like, what? Yeah, (laughs) truly. Totally, totally. (laughs) And and, because I love too, because I feel like you even notice, I want to say like from like a shift in celebrities almost inadvertently from that time. Cause like before that, it would always be the men kind of just like not fashiony at all, not like glamored up anything like that. But then you get like a Leo in the nineties growing up, everything like that kind of enjoyed being the little like object of affection uh, of, from like women and sort of like playing into the fact of being eye candy. And I feel like that all started for the Chippendales. Totally. I mean, I think that the Chippendales really had a lot to do with kind of changes and like mainstream masculine presentation. And I think that, yes, this idea, like you say, kind of like a pretty boy, but definitely a man who takes care of his appearance, a straight man, I should say, because gay men were sort of overtly taking care of their appearance for a long time. But the idea that a kind of like heteronormative masculinity that a man, a straight man would 
tan, take care of his skin, be sort of sentimentally available to, at least on the face of it, cater to women's desires. Like, you know, these Chippendales guys, I always think it's so funny. Like they were performing this like hyper aggressive macho role. They were policemen and, you know, construction workers and superheroes. But what do they do all day? They practice dance routines. They go tanning. They watch what they eat. They go to the gym and they do their hair. This is all work (laughs) that we consider very feminine. And so so I think it's super interesting, though, that they helped mainstream that. I mean, look at today. You look at the cover of Men's Health, which is like mainstream, like male media. And it's like, oh, you're a dad, you're a CEO, and you should have a six pack, too. That would not have been the case in the 60s or 70s, where straight men were not supposed to care about the way their body looks. No, they should not have mirrors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so it's so interesting because these topics bring up such... These ideas that you, on the baseline, assume you're like, oh, this is just pushing conversations forward and stuff like that. And I know in some of the interviews on your podcast, there's a lot of like second wave feminism discussion of talking about how this moves forward. But can you talk a little bit about the contradiction and like why people are sort of yes and knowing about it and how that's still a conversation? Yeah, totally. Well, like, like I said, and like you say, you know, there was something new and exciting about it, like women expressing their sexuality, they've got money to spend, they're being unapologetically like sexually aggressive. On the other hand, like Chippendales was a product designed by men where men were center stage, where I think that the guys behind it really were right, that it was a hot moment to say that you were selling women's liberation and they decided to do that. And so, you know, they talk, especially the the people who are still around today, they definitely talk like they were like arm in arm with Gloria Steinem. (laughs) But back then, there is no doubt in my mind, this was like smart marketing and that's it. I mean, the other nights of the week, they had women's mud wrestling. Like, give me a freaking joke. Hugh Hefner was the um, idol of Steve Banerjee. Hugh Hefner, although some people would uh, fight with me on this, but I don't think they have much ground on this. Some people would say Hugh Hefner was like this feminist. I do not think so at all. Mm-hmm. And like this, yeah, like, so I do not think that Chippendales was a feminist project in its design. Similarly, the men, you talk to the dancers, like these guys were not up there as like the foot soldiers of feminist liberation. They were up there because they wanted to get laid and be treated like <laughs> rock stars, you know? Like, And so I think that that's pretty easy to like peel back what's really going on there. That said, I do think a lot of women had valuable experiences going there. Like I was saying, having the time and space in their life to go out with their girlfriends, spend the money they were making, be kind of sexually raunchy and in a mostly women's space. I mean, that was all pretty new and I think is significant. So, yeah, I feel it's almost kind of in the not in like a simplification way, but it's almost one of those things like when a new like a bunch of new like genres of movies come out and it's like gay romance, not but it's like a white person and a white person, same age, same build, everything like that. It's not really moving any pedal forward. It's the uh, studios being like, this shit sells now, but then it's the audience seeing it and interpreting it, hopefully in a beneficial way that they could take away with it. Right. I think that's right. And I, you know, I don't want to expect too much of any one cultural product. Right. But I do think what you're saying is right. That like the interesting part is often not only the cultural product itself, but how it's received in the conversations that it sparks. Right. And so in some ways, like, you know, there's this one journalist, Mimi Seaton, who wrote for LA Weekly back then, and she goes to Chippendales very early on. And she kind of calls it for what it is very, very early. And I think she was right. But like, she never would have written that article if she hadn't gone to Chippendales. And that kind of of promotes a conversation. And ideally, I think that's what any kind of cultural phenomenon does. It gets people to start thinking and pushing boundaries even further. I love that. 
Also, I know there's so much, and we've been talking a lot about the idea of gender in the Chippendales, but there also is a lot of conversation, kind of a dark relationship with race as well. Can you sort of uh-huh. talk through like the greater historical context of that and kind of how that like all went into play with the creation of Chippendales and Chippendales itself? Yeah, it's one of the things that's interesting about Chippendales is if you ask most people to free associate with it, they'll kind of be like, hot guys, like calendars. And eventually, if you're like, what do they look like? What do they look like? They'll get to white. And like the aesthetic mm-hmm. of a Chippendales man, it's changed today. But if you're thinking about the its high point of the brand in the 80s, it definitely was this like white, quote unquote, clean cut, beachy California guy. That was very much by design. Now, I knew nothing about how that really came to be, but one of the first kind of alarm bells that went off in my head, or at least this is weird, was finding out that the founder of Chippendales was this guy, Steve Banerjee, who was himself a dark-skinned Indian immigrant. And I'm like, that is interesting, to say the least. And I was a historian. I knew that he came to the U.S. in part because after 1965, the immigration laws changed and a lot of people from South Asia and from Latin America came to the United States. So that didn't really surprise me. So there he is in the United States in this moment of like, you know, all the civil rights laws are happening during this time period. Like there's a lot of um, ferment and protest and all of this. Okay, so how does he come to establish Chippendales and as this very like white aesthetic? Well, what we found out through our interviews was that for Banerjee, he wanted a classy club and for him, classy meant white. So he very deliberately, he had a door policy where he wouldn't let in black men or black women. He tended to have one black dancer in part to satisfy increasing scrutiny from like employment agencies that like you can't be that racist and you're hiring, but also, and this is interesting from the capitalism perspective, because some women love the black dancer. Like they showed up there and they really were drawn to that. I was going to say that if you only have one, that's just like, it's uh, commercializing fetishization of the. Totally. Yeah. And that's something we took on head on in the podcast where I talked to Hadari Sababu, who was the one black dancer at that time. And he shared very openly about, you know, overt forms of racism that he encountered that sadly were not surprising. He was often paid less for calendar shoots. He, um, you know, was excluded from certain other um, merchandise. He could never be actually in the calendar because Banerjee said you can't, a, a white Southern woman would never buy a calendar that would have a black man on her wall 30 days a year. That None of that really surprised me. What was interesting to me is when I asked him, you know, a little tentatively, because remember, it's still me sitting across from this man at a table, like asking these very personal questions. I'm like, did you ever feel like some of the women of the club who were white because of the door policy, that they were like more attracted to you because you were black? And he's like, hell yes. And he said to me, like, not like that he would constantly get women, talk about fetishization, coming to him and being like, never been with a black man before. And that he actually was the one who kind of started the sex work aspect of Chippendales where he started charging for sex and that he was and he was very popular because he was the only black guy there as he put it the law of supply and demand and that he kind of told the other dancers how they could start charging for sex but you know it was that sort of perverse thing where here was this guy who was like the only black man there because of these racist hiring policies but then you know was also sort of 
more in demand because of this long racist history of exoticizing Black men and making them particularly scary for white women. So he becomes this kind of taboo attraction and therefore being able to charge more. So to me, it was this really interesting intersection of racism and capitalism and, you know, all the big themes wrapped up in this one guy's experience. So the the layered of his career with them is so insane. And I'm sure a lot of the reason why he, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but like he had to turn to also offering sex work too, is he's like, well, he's getting fucking paid less for all the work what everyone's doing. And then you also realize you're like, well, this is, I'm the only person here. How can I make a way to stand out? I'm not getting calendar shoots. I'm not getting anything. And then Absolutely. Up, yeah, that is, it. it's so crazy. And you talked a lot about uh, Steve, but Steve had a partner in crime, <laughs> almost mm. literally, <laughs> uh, Nick Denola. Could you kind of talk about their relationship there's a lot going on there do you think they and i also want to know do you think they could have done it alone do you think they needed to exist together could they was this kind of like lightning in a bottle situation for them yeah so to give a little background although i know everyone's already listened to the podcast yeah to give hopefully they will after our talk um so nick denoya is kind of an unlikely partner for steve Banerjee in some ways he's this new jersey new york city musical theater guy describes himself as a song and dance man um he's like his parents, I think, had a textile business in New Jersey. He would sneak into the city to take tap dancing lessons. Like he was like marching to the beat of his own drummer and had this Emmy Award winning kids TV show in the 70s called Unicorn Tales, which is freaking magic. And any of your listeners with children should go watch it. It's so freaking good. I love it. I love that. It's and it's all on YouTube and on our Instagram, but it's really good. So Denoya gets an offer to come out to LA to do a contract with Hanna Barbera, the animation company, like the cartoons. And nothing really comes of that. And we don't know exactly how he crossed paths with Steve Banerjee, but he somehow finds his way to the club um, and sees this show, which at the time was not so elaborate. Like it wasn't, you use the word vaudeville, it wasn't as much of a show. But Denoya, who has an eye for choreography and for production, thinks he can do something with it. And so he basically ends up upgrading the whole performance aspect of Chippendales. And then just to give some highlights slash lowlights, he ends up, he and Steve very quickly kind of butt heads. They have huge personalities. Nick loves the limelight. Steve doesn't, but resents that Nick is in the limelight. That only gets much more intense when Nick goes off to New York City to open the New York City Club, which is like five times the capacity of LA. It's also close to like all the media. So they're getting going on talk shows. People refer to him as Mr. Chippendale. So like Steve Banerjee's making money, but also pissed because like this is this thing he started, right? He's 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 Mr. Chippendale in his head, yeah. Yeah, totally. And so that kind of gets more intense. And the thing that most people think really like led them to their really fatal uh, conflict was that they had this deal that they made literally on a napkin. Okay, they wrote it on a napkin where um, to settle their issues, they had decided that Nick would get any touring rights of the show. And at the time, no tour existed. And it said in perpetuity. And there's debate. Did Steve know what perpetuity meant? I don't know. But so Nick starts touring and the tour is making tons of money and Steve is pissed. And, you know, Nick is kind of like poking the bear with Steve. Like he's like, go, he's supposed to not go a hundred miles from a, a club. He like goes 101 miles and sets oh, up a show. Of course he does. Cause he's a tap dancer entertainer. He loves to push a button. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that basically it's like boiling, 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 boiling. And um, yeah, I mean, Steve puts out a hit on Nick and Nick is killed April 7th, 1987. It's horrible. It's insane that it's, and it's also insane to show how the complexity of this. And I feel it's almost that with, uh, with our audience who are very much into true crime too, you see that so much that it is like, well, such a saying it's most times, you know, the intruder going in your house, you know, the murder going in your house. There's always some built up animosity, even if they're not discussing it, they kind of were, that is tearing it up so much more. Yeah, there absolutely is. I mean, you definitely saw, and one thing we show on the podcast is the rising tension between these two men. But one of the things that was interesting from a true crime perspective is like, that wasn't a secret. Like you could go into a Google rabbit hole and you could find out about Nick and Steve. So that wasn't, that's like not our main contribution, but I think at least two things, um, in addition to that, I think the podcast really, really does add to that story, which is one, like Steve was like criming all along the way. And so it's really like, you don't go from like the American dream to I'm going to murder my partner. Like that doesn't just happen. Like he is involved in all kinds of criminality leading up to it. And in some ways there's like no repercussions. Like the business just keeps doing better and better. And like, that's very eighties, isn't it? Like, you know, if you're making profit, then like that is the justification for all behavior. And like, you really see that with him. It's the like, but like the beauty in a like cultural examination sense of the eighties, but also the insanity that it's just like there's you, you almost feel like there's no rules, no watchdogs because it's it's everything. I feel so many businesses too like there's all this new type of development that I was like I don't know how to regulate that. Okay, let's do this and yeah. that. Deals are being made on napkins. Like it's such a different time, and it's also and that's why I feel like why I love this uh, the your podcast so much. It's just so interesting to go back into that realm of even just like you're like these aren't over emails that you're unpacking. These are from people over like talking at bars from now from like secondhand, thirdhand conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I love that you picked that up because as a historian, we're always like trying to make the part, the paper trail and like, can we get the sources? And I've never seen the napkin. I don't even know if it really exists, (laughs) But, but you're right. And you know, one of the other things that I was saying about the sort of building crime that's happening that had never been reported before is we talked about this issue of racism and the door policy. And so there is this black law student who gets turned away and he has this like fierce sense of justice. And so he actually keeps escalating his complaints about discrimination at the club, has a legal case about it. And Banerjee, we learned, took out a hit on him. <laughs> and it didn't go through in part. I kind of am spoiling. So I won't tell, say why, but um, it doesn't go through because it was uh, relayed to this guy. But one of the ways that it was, rela- the way that it was relayed to this guy is that there was like a log, an observation log by a PA, PI found in the backseat of a rental car that got carried to him at his house. It's like such a pre-email moment, you know, it's pre-internet beautiful. moment. Yeah, it's so cool. It's just the thing where you're like, it, it almost is like they don't make stories like that anymore. You know what I mean? Of course, there's like new age, you have scammers still scamming and everything at that yeah. time. But it's like, you don't got that drama going on in a zip car in 2020. Like, no, <laughs> the worst thing I find in the backseat of a car is like, 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 I don't know, like an empty like diaper box thing. And I'm like, this is <laughs> a refund. It's a really different life. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it does feel like a very different kind of moment in that way. feel too I mean even just from talking to you you're such uh easy person to have conversation with and enjoy but the people you're interviewing it obviously because they're not talking about it in theory they're talking about it from experience yeah was there anything like what how do you kind of go into those conversations do you try to tread lightly do you do a temperature check and like were there any reveals that people made I'm sure there were a lot but like one that kind of stood out you don't have to spoil that you were just like 
oh, wow, I'm just sharing that with me. Like what I'm in this moment. Yeah, a lot actually. And so I guess the first thing, you know, I'm a trained historian with a PhD. I've done a lot of oral histories. So like, I've got the chops to do this from a professional standpoint, but truthfully, one of the most important parts of this was coming in as a human being and thinking about how I would connect to these people who um, were really interesting because some of them have done a lot of media before. They're used to being interviewed. I mean, like all these dancers have been on Geraldo and Donahue and Sally Jesse. And so in some ways they're comfortable talking to folks, but I was asking very different kinds of questions. Like one, I'd sit down with them for two to five to one guy, like six hours and like have these wide ranging conversations. And so I think some of it was sort of like, trying to get to truly know them by asking questions that actually they didn't expect. Like, how'd you grow up? What your what was your mom like? What did you like to do as a kid? And that's not just me like warming them up in this like manipulative way. That's actually because I feel that to know who these people are and how they came to this moment in their life, I've got to understand where they come from and I've got to be able to situate them. And I think, you know, each person was different, but I think particularly with the men who were dancers, I think that that served to kind of make them open up and trust me a little bit more in part, because even if they'd done a lot of media, they were often treated almost like circus freaks to use yeah, one puppets, word. That, yeah. yeah. Oh, you're so hot. Oh, do you have a girlfriend? What do you do for your workout? Like, <laughs> do you believe in God? Like, do you like gays? Like, these are like the kind of questions <laughs> that they would get. Whereas I'm like, how did it feel as a 22 year old to have women throwing at themselves at you all the time? Or like, what, you know, what would you do when you woke up in the morning and all of that. And so I think that a lot of them felt sort of comfortable speaking to me in that way. Cause I also took them seriously as like people with real stories to tell, not just like Ken dolls who might have some like crazy sex stories, you know? A hundred percent. And I think it is, you brought up such an interesting point too, that I feel, cause when you think of the Chippendales, or like a male performing dancers, you always, I don't know why my head always goes like, oh, they're like kind of like a little bit older, like in their thirties or something like that, like uh 40 type of situation, like formed out ideas. But these are like young babies. They're 20, they're like children basically getting up there dancing, like obviously over 18, but still it's like, and not fleshed out and probably just in a situation like I, I, I can do this and I'm getting money, but what's happening? I don't know how to advocate for myself. Like think of any person at the first job, you didn't advocate for a raise or anything, try that with your shirt off. <laughs> A hundred percent. And I think, you know, I don't want to like overstate like victimization of these guys because in many ways they like had an amazing opportunity, but yes, you're right. They're very young. And these are like young men coming of age in a super intense environment where they're definitely being exploited in a lot of ways. And even if they're not totally being exploited, it's one aspect of their persona and their identity, which like looms so large, which I think probably to them, that was really fun in a lot of ways for a long time. But it definitely had its downsides. You did ask me about like one moment where I was like, yes. oh my God. So, you know, this actually didn't make it into the show, but um, it was one interview I did. So I really wanted to get to know who Nick Denoya was. I mean, he was killed in 1987. To the extent he was portrayed, I he's portrayed really as like a caricature. Like, oh, he's this like flamboyant, fabulous New York theater guy. And like, so hard to work with because he'd boss everybody around and like it just was like too easy of a caricature for me so i you know, yeah, yeah we're gonna say yeah, yeah. They, or they kind of just been like oh he's just like a loud annoying gay guy yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. not yeah. calling company on sexuality but that's kind of just like yeah so, yeah yeah and everyone has theories about like sexuality <laughs> i'll tell you that but anyway so i was like let me like get to know who he was and so one of the things that i found in my like 
internet research was that he, he never had kids, but he had this niece, um, Marie Denoya, who's a journalist herself. And I noticed that in one of her bios that she actually cites like that her, she's in still New Jersey, that her, um, one of her inspirations was her uncle who passed away, Nick Denoya. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So this is someone who is removed from him in age, but really had a connection. So I got to interview Marie and she really told me, you know, all this stuff about it, visiting him in LA, how, when she got her first job, she called and left a message on his answering machine. And, you know, she was so excited that he's like, you know, we'll have champagne when you're on air and kind of would like, would always push her. But then, you know, she told me the story, which I still get a chill talking about how, when she heard the news, um, maybe it was even just the day that he was murdered. She had like a pain in her cheek or her hand, like went, right up to her cheek and he had been shot in the face right on his cheek and that she had felt this closeness to him that it reverberated her uh, with her on that like somatic level and so I felt both so grateful that she shared it with me but it also was like you know, a way that I felt like, okay, I'm really connecting with someone in his family who has a more complex reading of who Nick Denoya was than just like stripper king, because that's the way he was remembered. I know everyone in his family. And I went to South Jersey and I had lunch with like his, all the like surviving members of his family and talked to them about him. And, you know, they all understandably are so pissed that Chippendales is seen as his legacy and that he died for Chippendales. Cause they're like, here's this Emmy award winning theater, children's TV producer who probably would have gone on to do so many different things, but he's remembered as Strip King. That was on the cover of the New York tabloids. And they're like, there was so much more for him, you know? Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it's meaningful to me to understand his family's memory of him, to try to paint a, try to paint a more complex rendering of this character who is so often caricatured. And I love that too, because you're giving also justice to him, just a full on discussion and being able to like, I feel it's also what happens so much in so many uh, documentaries and podcasts and things like that. You forget almost when you're watching and when you're doing to that, like these are people like it's like, they're totally. just like, this is a snapshot of their life, but let's get in. Let's it's, and it's so much more meaningful to unpack a lot of the other aspects and what they did on the other like 18 hours yeah. of the day <laughs> or before that. Totally. Yeah. And I think it's better for listeners too. Like, you know, I do really want to listen to a podcast. It's like so predictable in terms of like these like two dimensional characters, probably not. Exactly. So hopefully it's like, you know, it's like the right thing to do, but hopefully it's good for the listener experience too. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, there's, there's layers to it. And I want to ask too, because it's Chippendales. If you were getting a Chippendales dance in the eighties, Back then, what would what would you want your song to be to be played while it was all going down? Well, okay, if I had to choose from the Chippendales repertoire, <laughs> there's this one called Room Service, which is like so amazing. I won't sing it because I'm really bad at singing, but um, it's like they literally have a music video of it. It's like this like hot lady, and she um, goes to her hotel room, and they're like Room Service, and all she gets all these guys to deliver her food, but it's all like very symbolic food, if you know what I mean. So that's probably the song that I would choose, but. If it was just like a classic 80s song, um, um, let me think. I don't know. I love them all so much. I know, it's um, so hard. There's, there's so many good ones. I don't know. Like this one, it would like be a little less sexual, but I feel like Total Eclipse of the Heart could bring a lot of energy out there. Totally. Yeah, that's a really good one, too. I was singing almost like a Taylor Dane song, you Ooh, know, like, yes. the, like all of her, her repertoire is like really good. Um, yeah, there are a lot. Or you can like get out of my dreams and into my car. Remember that song? <laughs> 
And one last question before we play the game. I just got to, because you, like you even said, this Chippendales kind of birthed bachelorette parties, which is so funny because they're such like a thing everywhere now. What are, or what are your personal thoughts on a bachelorette? Do you love them? Do you hate them? If you see them when you're walking in the street, do you run for cover? <laughs> it's so funny. So I try to come from a non-judgmental place. Of you're better than me. But you want to know something really funny that a friend of mine um, uh, reminded me of. So yesterday was my 14 year wedding anniversary. And she was like, <laughs> she's like, do you remember that for your bachelorette party, you would like no male strippers. Like I will not have any male strippers. And I'm like, I do remember that. And then we incidentally went to like some restaurant where there were a lot of brides and there ended up being like a stripper there who did a dance for me. But um, I don't, I mean, I don't judge like, like it's fine. I mean, the thing that it kind of annoys me about um, like the way Chippendales framed that experience a little bit was like, oh, this is women's liberation. I don't think it's women's liberation. I think it's like a fun thing that actually upholds a lot of very traditional ideas about gender and marriage and all of yeah. these things. But whatever, it's like a night and it's fun. And as long as everyone's like consensual and having a good time, like have a as, blast. Yeah. As it's more so it's like instead of liberation, it's more so like liquidation because you have a lot of alcohol and you lose all your cash. But you know, <laughs> it evens out. Totally. Live and let live. <laughs> live and let live. Oh, I mean, God bless. Oh, to be in Nashville right now, drinking a pina colada out of a pina shaped drink. I mean, I, I, <laughs> after, this, after this vaccine, I'm doing that. Okay, but before we let you go, and before we make all of our listeners who haven't already listened to your podcast on Spotify, go listen to it. We have a fun game. We like to end every episode with a game now. And Jorge made this game. I have no clue what the questions are. Music is involved. All right. Well, uh, first off, thank you, Natalia, so much for being here and for playing this game with us. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And yeah, this podcast is fantastic to all our listeners. I think you would all really enjoy it. It's really been a joy to listen to. So check it out when you get a chance. Thank you. After every episode, Hori was like, did you listen yet? I was like, okay, you wake up earlier than me. (laughs) I have not listened yet. I will listen today. (laughs) I'm honored. Thank you so much. (laughs) It really has been a joy to listen to. We don't always get like such great content to talk about. So thank you. (laughs) And that's the (laughs) take. So today we're actually going to take a deep dive into the music of Chippendales with a game called Chippendales Shazam. (laughs) So as part of this podcast, Spotify actually released a fantastic playlist of all the songs from the original show. Check it out. It's uh, it's called Welcome to Your Fantasy on Spotify. And there's some absolute club bangers in there. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to play the beginning of a few of these songs and you're going to take turns trying to guess the name and the artist of the song and you'll get one point for each. And if one of you is stumped, then the other person will get a chance to guess it. All right. This is me versus Danny. Yep. (laughs) Okay. I feel the need to clarify that the only exam I ever failed in college was the music recognition part of music humanities. (laughs) So geeky I am, but I have a really bad ear. So just lower your expectations. So this is triggering. This is bringing up a lot of memories for you. (laughs) Totally. So All right, some of these will be pretty easy, I hope, but there's a couple of obscure ones, so try to listen carefully. All right, Natalia, we'll start with you. All right, you ready? Conga, Gloria, Nailed it. You only needed like two seconds. All right, that is two points for Natalia. Look Danny, okay. up to you. So here we go. Second song. Oh, my heart's on fire. 
Oh, um, is this Tina Turner? It is. Okay. Good job. Oh, not what's love got to do with it, no. Not Private Dancer. No, which one is it? All right, Danny, final, final oh, guess. Oh, no, um, Tina one? Turner. Uh, I don't know. Natalia, do you know the name? I wanted to say Through the Fire, but that's a Chaka Khan song, so I'm wrong. It's called The Best. Oh, you're simply <laughs> the best. Oh, damn it. Oh, my God. God. <laughs> Better than all the rest. Oh, we're so bad. Okay, I feel like slightly, okay. Maybe I should go If I call. was drunk and this was karaoke, I would have gotten in a second. <laughs> <laughs> All right, third song, Natalia, it's back to you. Okay. Cold-hearted snake, Paula Abdul. Wow, nailing it. Four, four, four. Okay. That is impressive. <laughs> Saw her in, con- in concert in like 2017, opening for NKOTB. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got a super fan. I'm sorry, Daddy, I didn't know this. <laughs> the Abdul heads, yeah. <laughs> yes, I love her. All right, Danny, back to you. Is this safe to dance now? No. Oh, I don't. I don't got this. We got it. We got to throw it over to Natalia. Damn it. Oh, do you not know? All oh, right. I thought it was. I would die for you, Prince, but it's not. Does this sound kind of like that? Is it Prince? You have the uh, artist you, right. Oh, it's Prince. Okay, it is it's Prince. not. I would die for you. It's not. I will die for you. It's from um, that same album, though. Purple Rain. Oh God. Um. Is it like when doves dance? Is there a B side I didn't know about? <laughs> oh no, when doves cry. <laughs> I don't know. All right, the name of the song is "Baby, I'm a Star." Okay, oh, well, he, he always will be. You're being really nice to me. I feel like I have the like visiting team advantage here, but I, I'm not complaining. I'm really grateful. Like I said, I'm getting some B sides over here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up, Natalia, it's uh, your turn. You are leading five to one, which is, whoo, a boy. She's simply the best. Danny, there is still time, so don't despair. All right, here we go. Love will lead you back, Taylor Dane. That is incorrect. Hold on. You can do it, Danny, if you know. Oh, is this Whitney? It is Whitney, Danny. It's not from Bodyguard, no. Earlier. Earlier. Um, Don't you have a song broken now? I'll give you an album hint. It's from I'm Your Baby Tonight. Is the song I'm Your Baby Tonight? Nope. (laughs) I know it. Wait. It's called that, right? Wait, did she get it? No, the actual name of the song is All the Man I Need. Oh, oh that is a great <laughs> album. I had the cassette. It was like an orange cassette. I remember, yeah. I remember Some that. of our listeners won't even know what a cassette is. Oh, God. <laughs> that's so If anybody cool. did not know who Whitney Houston was, please stop listening to this podcast. And I mean that sincerely. <laughs> <laughs> Educate yourself and come back. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, Danny, we're back to you. And I think this one's a little bit of a gimme. So I, we, we believe in you. Oh, um, uh, um, I, don't, I can like sing the chord. I need to. Lonely, uh, no, um, broken, no, um, you know, you know, oh, uh, and um, have no rhythm. Yes. Um, um, that's, that's what's it called? Lyric. Dancing feet don't have no rhythm or broken feet? No. <laughs> um. The name of the song is actually a little tricky. It's not something. Mm-hmm. Is there a parenthesis involved or no? There's no parenthesis. Do you, do you know the artist at least? Oh, why am I blanking so hard? <laughs> All right, here we go. I'm never gonna dance again. Guilty. Guilty feet have got but no rhythm. It's not called that. I feel like Natalia, you got this. She's got. She's known every word. Twister by Wham, right? <laughs> yes, George Michael, but George Wham Michael as well. Wham. So okay, I thought it was. I thought it was yeah. being inspired by. I'll give it Wham. to you. Yeah, yeah, I know like every word of that one. Oh. Uh, well, you're a lot younger than me, freedom. Danny. Like this, That's I'm 42. True. Like I was too young for that, but that was like on the radio still when I started listening to the radio in like sixth grade, maybe. Because <laughs> my mom raised me with specific 80s, like a Pat Benatar, a Madonna, a Cindy Lauper, and then she went to Melanie in the 60s oh, for me. God. So I got, <laughs> I could do all of Melanie. There's a chance peace will come. Yeah. All right, we have two more songs. Oh God. All right, so Natalia, it's up to you. This one. Oh. Oh. Um, I. Oh! Janet Jackson? Yes. Is it Rhythm Nation or Control? It is Rhythm Nation. Yeah. I remember the choreography. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great, great oh, music video. I now video. know what I'm doing tonight. Oh, I'm going to so go good. listen to all these songs and dance. <laughs> no, this playlist is no joke. And also, Janet is music video. So yeah, go. That's yeah, true. She truly made that. Yeah, totally. All right, Danny. Last up to round us off. You can end on a high note. You can redeem yourself with this one. I have 80 sunglasses on. Oh, he's putting on the pink glasses. Okay, you ready? <laughs> oh, Holiday Madonna. Yes, 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 yes. Good Thank job. Thank God for Good the glasses. Job. Thank God for Madge. <laughs> you guys are so fun. I have been doing interviews the whole day. They all have their own charms, but this is like amazing. And I was scared about this. Really? Like, you guys are awesome. <laughs> uh, you are amazing. And also you're the winner. Yes, you are the winner. I won't embarrass Danny with the final score, but Natalia, <laughs> you are a runaway winner. So thank you so much for playing with us. And again, listen to this podcast, guys. It's fantastic it, there's so much intrigue in it the historical background is so good the research is really i can't i can't give it a good enough personal endorsement really because that that's the thing it's such a fun topic an interesting topic but it's so well done because of you natalia that it's just it's oh. a joy to listen to it's like a gift thank you, thank you so much welcome thank to your you. fantasy on spotify and do you want anyone to follow you on instagram or are you a personal yes follow me i can't promise you'll love it all but you know follow me i'm natalia petrozella I love it so much. I love it so much. So go follow her. Tell her how much you love this podcast. Tell her how good she is at this game. And then, of course, we'll see you next week on Another True Crime Podcast, guys. 
Not Another True Crime Podcast is produced by Jorge Morales Pico and Sean Kilby. Our hosts are Sarah Levine and Danny Murphy. Editing by Jorge Morales Pico. Social media by Sarah Levine. Be sure to follow at NATC Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And send us your emails to NATC at Betches.com. Betches.